Guidance for listeners. Please be aware that this episode of Meet Me at the Museum contains audio which some may find upsetting. Be my friend, now love She's one of those people who we should know her name like we know Rosa Parks. Yes. We should know yes. her name like we know Mayor Angelo. We should know her name like we know Martin Luther King. Yeah. But many people don't. It's Fanny Lou Hamer. I am Malik Al Nasser, a poet and social activist from Liverpool, and I'm also a PhD student at the University of Cambridge. And I'm here today with Dr. Leona Vaughan, my friend and colleague at the International Slavery Museum in Liverpool. There's no escaping the reality of what these warehouses were for. And, you know, to have something like this here at the Albert Dock, being outside the main building that is now what we call the Martin Luther King Building. It's a bittersweet sort of reality. When I stand in, I look at these grand pillars and I think back to, you know, it was the former Granada TV studios, it's part of the Albert Dock, and now it's a part of the Slavery Museum. It evokes all kinds of, you know, feelings. The sugar, the cotton, all of the things that came through here all obviously came because of our involvement in slavery and colonialism. I have mixed feelings about the Slavery Museum. Not the actual museum itself but I think just you know like yourself my family are descended from enslaved Africans it's a very emotional experience coming to the museum I'm actually really glad that we're here (laughs) and there's no one else around because I've got to say when I've been here before I've sort of whipped around the exhibition because it evokes a lot of feelings and emotions that you don't necessarily want to have out on show surrounded by crowds of tourists and and school children at the end of the day, that's a personal story. These are my ancestors. And I, I think that that hits differently than when you're just an observer. I'm glad that we're here and I'm glad that no one else is. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I research slavery and the slave trade. So I have to, in, in many ways, um, divorce myself from the subject matter in order to be able to get through it. Exactly. Because it's so traumatic. But, um, yeah, mixed feelings about that. Should we go inside and have a look? Yeah, let's go round the side. Hi, I'm Malakal Nassim. I'm Leona Vaughan, and this is Meet Me, Me at, at the, the museum. museum. So, this is the entranceway of the Maritime Museum here in Merseyside, and we're just walking through now into the main auditorium. Uh, into what would normally be a bustling museum but because of lockdown there's really not a lot going on that's a hollow echo that isn't it in this room it's quite eerie actually you can feel that sense of being back in time can't you oh yeah there's the sign there the third floor third floor yeah so we need to take the lift then or the stairs Uh, I I think I'll go go with the lift (laughs) opening they will remember that we were sold but not that we were strong they will remember that we were bought but not that we were brave William Prescott former slave 1937 wow 
Do you know what? That really speaks to me, that, because so many people say, you know, slavery is so far in the past. Why aren't people over it? You know, why are people still talking about reparations? Why are they talking about the impact of it so long ago? But 1937 is just before the Second World War. This museum explores how millions of Africans were forced into slavery, the crucial part that Liverpool played in this process and how there are permanent consequences for people living in Africa, the Caribbean, North and South America and Western Europe. This story has been neglected by too many for too long. Totally neglected. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I'm glad that there is a slavery museum, as traumatic as it is. But, you know, it's funny as we're walking down here, they've got this granite column all the way along with these inscriptions in. And it's almost like a walk of shame, you know. We've got our own William Roscoe, an abolitionist, you know, um, here in Liverpool, but a beneficiary of slavery. You know, we've got That's the complication of history, though, isn't it? It's I mean, very it is nuanced. complicated. It's very, very nuanced. I've got to say, though, one of the things I notice as a black woman, I'm thinking, where are the women? No, we've got no Frederick Douglass, we've got Martin Luther King. Yeah. They're really important people. Yeah, we could have done with someone like uh, Sojourner Truth. Yeah. You know, Harriet it just, Tubman. It just strikes me as soon as I walk in. It's like, okay, where's our voice? Yeah, Harriet, Harriet Tubman would, would, would be uh, you know, appropriate here. Mm. Maybe that's something we can suggest to the museum. Leona, the reason I brought you here today is so we could have a look around the International Slavery Museum here at Liverpool's Maritime Museum. And just to get a sense of, um, you know, my major interest, which is the study of my own ancestry back through slavery. And that's incredible, really, because I've really struggled to find my family history. So my dad's from Barbados. Obviously, his family were born into, into slavery. They were enslaved Africans. They also moved to Panama at some point and then back to Barbados. So it's even more difficult. I mean, the irony of it as well, you know, sort of like your name, Watson, yeah. your family name, Scottish name, my name, Vaughan, yeah. very, again, a Celtic name. We think Welsh, but, you know, people wouldn't necessarily claim us. <laughs> I mean, I've known you for way over 20 years, but probably it's only recently that I've known about your family history and the amount of research that you've done on your own about slavery um, in your family. Yeah, because when we met, I think probably it was about two years after we met that I started doing the research into um, the Victorian, black Victorian footballer, Andrew Watson, who was my namesake, because obviously I was Mark Watson. I converted to Islam and changed my name to Malak al-Nasser, but my family is Watsons going back generations. And um, when Andrew Watson's character was brought to life on BBC Scotland documentary about the world's first black footballer uh, who captained the Scottish national side in the 1880s. I started looking into him because, you know, there was illustrations of this guy and he looked like me, but he was born in 1856, do you know what I mean? And the same family name, come from Demerara, same part of Guyana as my father. So that started me on a journey to find that family history. But Leona, to be honest, it's something I've done in the background. It it never came to prominence in my life. It was always a little, um, like a hobby, 
I had no idea when I started on that journey that I would uncover this whole connection to this big sugar conglomerate, Sandbach Tinney, Samuel Sandbach, the namesake of it, was a Lord Mayor of Liverpool in 1831. One of his nephews designed the Port of Liverpool building, you know. And these guys formed the Bank of Liverpool, and he was the chairman of the Bank of Liverpool, and many of the family members were, were directors of the Bank of Liverpool, and, and it was all predicated on, you know, the proceeds of uh, slavery, primarily from the Caribbean. So I had no idea that I was connected to these people, and when I started looking deeper into the family tree, you know, I found connections, family connections to Prime Minister Gladstone. You know, this was insane. You know, I had to resign myself to the reality that I was not only descendants of slaves, but I was descendants of slave traders. Yeah. These people are my family. They're yeah. in my family tree. You know, I've got Prime Minister Gladstone in my family tree. And it was only really when we met for lunch one day, didn't we? And you said, oh, I've bought these archives. I'd like to show them to oh, did you. I, did I bring the archive? Yeah. I showed no, you I the came to yours oh, and right, you got yeah, these oh, archives out. And I was just like... Yeah, this is an incredible treasure trove. Um, but I was doing my PhD at the time as That's well, wasn't right, I? And I was yeah. just like, Malik, you this is a PhD. You should be doing a PhD. Wow, Leona, look at all these instruments here. You've got birambaos. I thought the birambao was from uh, Brazil. I thought they developed it in Brazil. I didn't realise they had African ones as well. Okay, and well. djembes and all kinds of uh, artefacts here from, uh, from, from West Africa. It's really nice, isn't it, to actually see that we start with some African art and artefacts rather than it being like slavery, chains and, you know, yeah. it's actually saying, look, this is the source of it. This is where it began. You know, this is there was a, a, a life and a history before slavery. Yeah, I, I think it's like Muta Baruka said, you know, um, slavery is not African history. African history was interrupted by slavery. Absolutely. Well, this bit is called Enslavement and the Middle Passage. So it kind of starts off with the African story and those very things that you say, you know, that Africa was, was developed in its own right. Should we have a look? Yeah, let's go in. Wow. It's really quite dark in here, isn't it? You feel quite um, encased. And so it should be. It was a dark chapter. The Voyage of the Essex on the 13th of June... 1783, the ship Essex left Liverpool on a slaving voyage. The details of this voyage have been reconstructed using original documents in the museum's archives. And there's a picture here of the Africans packed like sardines, chained into the slave ships, all naked and lying, literally one next to the other. But I think what is so profound about this image to me is the fact that they put a child right at the bow of the ship because that's the narrowest point on the ship and it wasn't obviously wide enough to be able to put a, a, an adult but they thought, okay, we can fit one child in there yeah. so let's stick an extra one in and this just shows you the level of barbarity But also the way that they've sanitised it it becomes a mathematical, you know it's a, it's a problem to solve, isn't it? It's like how many people can we actually get in here yeah, to what, make the maximum amount of money? What's the configuration? Yeah. You know, and I don't, you know, when you think these guys were doing this in the 1700s on, on sail ships, if the wind didn't blow, how long would it take to get across? You know, they were totally dependent upon the wind for that ship to move. And as an old seaman myself, I know that, you know, if you're sailing from West Africa to America, that's two weeks and a motor vessel with, you know, the propellers operating 24 hours a day. Yeah. 
So if you're on a sail ship where you're dependent on the, the power of the, the wind, wind mm. that could take months to make that journey. And you'd be lying there in your own feces and vomits and excrements. Mm. And people would have got sick. And, you know, when they got sick, you couldn't sell them for full price at the market because they were ill. So you would throw them overboard and claim the insurance instead. Wow. Yeah. Because people were commodified. They were just classed as property. So, Leona, I think we should have a walk through this particular uh, video exhibit here. Um, it's called The Middle Passage, A Voyage Through Death. The harrowing account of, um, of people being transported from West Africa to the Caribbean in the Americas. Wow, OK, this is a really sort of suffocating space, isn't it? And I think that probably that's purposefully so. Yeah, even the acoustics in this room sort of make you feel as though you're in a confined space mm. and your voice is sort of echoing back at you. Possibly that gives a sense of what it might have been like in the hull of a ship. This is probably about the same width as the hull of the ship where the slaves were packed into. Mm. When my children have come here on, on trips, this is the bit that always affects them the most seeing what you would see through the eyes of a person who was enslaved on that ship. You know, that whole feeling, the seasickness, the noise, the crying, people vomiting. It's really powerful. I think it's, it's important to have something like this in the museum. You're immersed in the reality of the experience. There's, there's, you can't really, escape it, can you? You it's can't escape it. in this space. And, and that's the point. You well, couldn't escape it. the ship. You're in yeah. the middle of the ocean. You can skim past, you can walk past something quickly, you can read it really quickly and get out of the way. But in this part of the exhibition, it kind of makes you have to face the reality of that trip and of the brutality and the, the evilness. It's kind of designed to trap you in the space and force you to face it. Yeah. You know, it's harrowing. This museum, as painful as it is, it's a story that has to be told. It's got to be told because people don't see it. They get the sanitised version of how Britain became great, you know, how we become this great power. Um, they don't get the true version. Well, I think if you're willing to sanitise history in the way that you describe, then what you are essentially doing is being incredibly disingenuous to future generations because you're denying them the opportunity to understand why we are how we are. Mm. And when you consider the kind of polarisation that exists in society now on racial grounds, on class grounds, and the kind of protests and, and, and things that we've seen in the wake of, you know, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Black Lives Matter, you, you know, you would, you would struggle to understand that connection. Exactly. You, you wouldn't be able to, it would be like trying to work out a algebra or something where you've only, but you don't even have enough bits in the equation to be able to come to a conclusion, to have that formula 
to work it out. You've got to know all the bits in the equation. And this is what I'm about with my research. You know, it's through my family history is really just being able to go back through history and unpick it and not to um, try and fit it into some sort of, you know, paradigm based on, you know, what this academic said or what that academic said. For me, it's about letting the documents speak. And the beauty of a place like this, the Slavery Museum, the Maritime Museum, you know, is that you have the archival material here and you can let the words emerge from the pages and tell us the story. You know, the past can speak to us through In these archives. In a way archives. that our ancestors weren't allowed to. Our, our ancestors weren't given that voice. They don't have that voice. But we can give them that voice through archives and exhibits, and I think that that's important. We couldn't tell the story of the Second World War without talking about the Holocaust, right? You know, so... We have to tell this story. I always say to my kids, and my, you know, my kids were not particularly happy with this museum. Every Black History Month, the school would make them come to the museum. And, you know, my daughter turned around and went, we've got more history than just slavery. That's not even our history, is it, Mum? You know, <coughs> and I, I completely, I hear it, I completely get it. But I also say to her, actually, it is our history and we should be proud of where we are now. So when I look at this space, Malik, it feels like it is a ship, mm. you know? And I wonder if they've purposefully designed it like I, that. I think they have. I think they've created the exhibit in the shape of a ship yeah. to give that sense of being on a ship. And but there's we, just there's so much here, isn't there? There is. There's, there's, there's a lot of artefacts here. But I think we can take a quick look around. But first, I think I'd like to have a little chat with the director of the International Slavery Museum, uh, Dr Richard Benjamin. Hello there, good to see oh, you. Oh, nice to see you. Hi, how Hello are you, there. Richard? It's been a while. I uh, just it wanted has, to, yeah. uh, to get a little bit of background um, from you about the, the history of the um, Liverpool Slavery Museum. We're in the Merseyside Maritime Museum building. We're on the third floor. Uh, but in the early 90s, in the basement of this building, of the Maritime Museum, was the Transatlantic Slavery Gallery. Yeah, and I came here. Yeah, 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 you will have done. Very popular, you know, millions of visitors. Uh, I visited myself before I became uh, head of the museum in 2006 many, many times. And it did a great job, but one of the things it didn't do was really talk about contemporary issues. It was very much a maritime history, chronological look at transatlantic slavery. But museums develop and audiences develop and demand different types of information. And museums need to be relevant. So decision was taken 2003, 2004, that rather than just being a gallery within a museum, you should be a museum yourself on the same level of status as your British Museum or the National Portrait Gallery. So plans were put in place to close the gallery and to move the museum, the new museum, onto the, the third floor where we are now. And uh, I'm sure you know this, you probably were present. We opened on the 23rd of August 2007 and we've had four million visitors. And, you know, it's basically split into three galleries, Life in West Africa to give people some kind of uh, concept and grounding in when we talk about Africa and African people and not just to see this as a, as a European story. The agency is, is African agency for the museum. And we're in the Enslavement and Middle Passage Gallery. You know, it talks about Liverpool's role, Britain's role, life on, in the Americas. It talks about the Middle Passage and that horrendous journey. And then there's the Legacies Gallery that I know we'll go into. And that's what brings the museum up to, up to date. It, it talks about very relevant issues for Liverpool 
and the country as a whole, the legacies of transatlantic slavery. So there's a, a potted history. So I recall around that time that Peter Moores, uh, a very prominent businessman in Liverpool, That's right. gifted some money to get the whole thing yeah. off the ground. And it was quite con- controversial, the owner, as I recall. There was, there was, there was the a time. lot of controversy in the community about it at the time as to whether there should be one, whether there shouldn't be one, what it should yeah. look like. And, yeah. you know, do you recall those times? I do, yeah. I also recall the, um, the Lord Mayor of the city at the time refusing to acknowledge that the, the city has any role in the transatlantic slave trade. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I think that the museum brought Maya Angelou, didn't they? It did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she was here. I mean, you know, what a figure. Uh, and that's right. So when it opened in 1994, she did attend the opening. So, you know, they got people of that ilk to be associated with the museum project which, or the gallery project. And that was, that was really important. So in terms of today's sort of conversation around racism and the yeah. kind of political polarisation that has been yeah. with the Black Lives Matter movement and, yeah, yeah. you know, George Floyd and, and so on, how, how does... Um, an institution like this sort of connect, if you like, with those um, contemporary issues in that way? Yeah, well, it's a, a good question. Well, first thing is, you, you, you know, you need to be relevant, and I've, I've talked about this. So you need to be a conduit for these discussions. You know, museums are not, are not neutral spaces. You, you take a stance. So how do you become an anti-racist museum? It's a big thing, isn't it, you know? And it's not going to be something overnight. We have diverse staff. We have staff with personal experience and professional experience who are probably more able to develop and cope with subjects like this than other members of, and colleagues within the larger organisation that is National Museums Liverpool. So what you do is you support your colleagues who maybe aren't aware of the issues. So museums can tell you about something. They can give you the past and they can give you ideas of what to do in the future. But personally, I think that if you want to be anti-racist then you need to go out and find out what it means. Talk to people about their experiences and maybe you'll make a difference if you do something positive yourself. So when I've come here before, with, you know, when I've brought people from all over the world, I find myself moving really quickly through the gallery, right. really quickly through the yeah, space because yeah. I just feel like I just am not ready to engage with it in that, in that way. Yeah. What's your feelings and what's your favourite bit of the gallery? Well, I do feel a particular affiliation with, with the whole museum because I'm... Uh, intimately involved in I suppose a lot of the decisions and and why things came about and I know when I walk through the museum I kind of know the history of how everything is here both good and bad you know not everything worked but like yourselves you know I am a descendant of enslaved Africans within uh, and Malik I know you obviously know this because it's dear to your heart as well is is what is now Guyana and was British Guyana and Esakubo and Demerari and my dad's from Guyana so well, there's a sense of pride that I'm here and I, I can make a difference. But I always think of my dad and my, my own family. So, yeah, there's, there's numerous locations. We can, we can go and have a look at one in particular. If it, it's, a, it's a commemorative coin that okay. was uh, in 1970 when Guyana became a republic, uh, been independent since... 66. 66, that's right. So Guyanese citizens were given a commemorative coin... Uh, of what was called the Burbies Slavery Revolt. Is this the one from the 1823 revolt with Cuffy on the back of it? That is indeed. Right. I have one of those. Have you got one yourself? I've got right, one in my right. Yeah. Oh, marvellous. Well, this was given to my, to my dad when the museum opened in 2007. I asked my dad if he'd be interested in loaning the object to the museum. So we can go now through the galleries and I can, I can take you to uh, one of the objects that you know, means quite a lot. Sure, let's go. 
So we're here in the, in the Legacies Gallery, and we're actually specifically near what's called the Fight for Freedom and Equality Wall. Uh, and that talks about 400 years of revolts and rebellions and resistance to being enslaved. And the display case that's in front of us here now has a number of very poignant objects, particularly to people like yourself from Liverpool. As you can see next to the cuffy dollar here, we actually have a police helmet from the Toxtus Uprisings. So because this is the racism and discrimination section, you've got a kind of a mixture of objects which kind of give you different elements of that subject matter. And we've also got a T-shirt there, as you will see, with Angela, Angela Davis. Davis. That's right. That's I've right. had a little bit of a cold chill oh, as, yeah. as you do this because yeah. I'm actually currently writing a memoir and part of my memoir is um, about the 1981 Toxteth riots. Right. And you've got the poster here, That's Oxford right. Out, which was the anti-Ken Oxford march That's it, yeah. that we did during the Toxteth riots. The, the riots paused for a day because they started on a Friday, and I can't, it was a few days in, they paused and we had the anti-Ken Oxford march. And I was on that march. And there's actually there's a, a photograph, and I'm in the second row, where it's got the, yeah, it's got the, I'm uh, 15-year-old me, oh, with an afro, <laughs> in the second row. Um, when we, I literally remember the day we marched from Sefton Park, from the obelisk in Sefton Park, and someone had made a, a coffin to commemorate the death of David Moore, who was killed by a police Land Rover. It's the first and only one of two marches I've ever been on in my life. We yeah. marched from the, from the obelisk in Sefton Park to St. George's Hall. Yeah, and uh, the Liverpool Eight Black Sisters were right at the front of the march, and we right. were singing, ain't no stopping us now, we're on the move. <laughs> and I'm in the second row there with all the Black Sisters in the front row leading the charge, yeah. I might add, underneath the banner of the Liverpool Eight Defence Committee. Oh, I and know we the chanted picture. Yeah. Oxford yeah. out all the way there and literally the police on that day completely and utterly backed off right. and did not challenge us and we got all the way there and had a massive rally at St George's uh, Hall so this is right. you know to have the the coffee dollar which I also have one uh, in my own collection at the front the police helmet to the side yeah. so there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of history going on going in that on one little that. exhibit what you have just said and that story that you've just told us that is the power Mm. of museums because in here many people would see an interesting poster with a little label mm. you've just told us a story a museum's mm. about telling stories i was there you were there looking at these characters along this wall it's the whole yeah, thing we've got yeah. harriet tubman here well that's well. yeah that's good because i mentioned before you know black women's voices are really yeah, important in this story it would be it would have been good if harriet tubman would have been at the entrance because they were all male voices as we were walking in yeah, on, course, on, on and, the wall. And, and, but that's the development of museums. The late, great Dorothy Kuya, a critical friend of the museum and someone that advised me on, on many occasions. And one of the things Dorothy used to say is, look, you know, you do need more women's voices in here. And that's relevant because actually behind us, where we're talking now, is one of the displays called the uh, Black Achievers Wall. And if you walk over to the Black Achievers area you'll get over 75 black achievers from history contemporary and over 50 percent of those are women and that was something that i always remembered when dorothy said to me you need more women's voices so we made a deliberate effort that when we do put new black achievers on the wall and we put a few up every you know every year or so then there's uh, it's mainly women in recent years and rightly so rightly so i'm loving the fact we've got shirley chisholm over here 
that uh, was the yeah. first black woman to ever run for, was it for Congress? Did she run yeah, for I Congress? Congress yeah. And then she ran for president, didn't she? She but did, she, she yeah, did Democrat. It. I do not intend to offer to you the tired and glib cliches which for too long have been accepted part of our political life. I am the candidate of the people of America. So who's your favourite sister on the wall here, Leona? Oh, gosh, that's, that's, that's a difficult <laughs> spot, one to choose, Leona, actually. Right? But I, I'd probably say Olive Morris. OK. Oh, yes. And yes. I think that Olive Morris, for me, is more of what she could have become. You know, she embodied the potential for black women in the 70s. Yes. You know, right, and, yeah. you know, she died when she was, what, 31, 32? Yeah, something really, wow. really, really young. Um, but, you know, a real activist, grassroots organiser. Absolutely. You know. I think for me, it's Fannie Lou Hamer. Mm. Ah, I think yeah. Fannie Lou Hamer was one of the most underrepresented civil rights activists. Yeah, less known, isn't it? I mean, well, she yeah. sang... She was an incredible singer, but she only ever sang at protest rallies. Walk with me. Jesus. She never ever sang commercially. Oh, right, right. And she would turn up. That's right. And she would represent the interests of people seeking the vote. And she was constantly under threat from the Ku Klux Klan. That's it. She was yeah. constantly being maligned. She was constantly being abused, threatened. And this woman had absolute faith in what she was doing, that yeah. she was representative of a just cause. Be my friend, She's one of those people who we should know her name like we know Rosa Parks. Yes. We should know yes. her name like we know Mayor Angelo. We should know her name like we know Martin Luther King. Yeah. But many people don't. Oh, Malik, we've got to look at this this painting. It is probably... I'd say, actually, it's probably my favourite painting... It's epic. ...of all times. But it is certainly my favourite painting in terms of what it represents. It's called The Hunted Slaves, and it's by Richard Anstel. It it's looks like massive. he painted it in 1863. Yeah, 1833. Presented by G. Winter Moss Esquire, 1863. It is huge. It takes up an entire wall. I just love what it represents. So the, this is two escaped uh, enslaved people. So it's set in a field of cane. It looks like sugar cane from mm -hmm. what I know from, from Barbados. Mm -hmm. And they're being chased by dogs. And these dogs are rabid animals frothing at the mouth, you know, slobbering, teeth bared. Um, and you've got the male enslaved African with an axe raised, protecting the woman. From the, from the dogs. And you can see on his wrist is um, the, the shackle, the manacles, one of which is, is, is open and the other one is still attached to him. And it's just, I just think it's a really powerful painting. I've never seen this image before, but what it suggests to me is something from a visual narrative that we don't often see, and that is the black man protecting the black woman. Exactly. And, and I always remember reading Bell Hooks, mm. um, the black uh, feminist, when she wrote that book, Ain't I a Woman? Yeah. Based on Sojourner Truth. 
And, and she said that one of the things about slavery was that it emasculated the black man and made it impossible for him to protect the black woman and the black woman ceased to respect the black man because he failed to protect her. But what you find here is an image where the black man is in fact escaping from the bonds of slavery and is not only protecting the black woman, he's slaying the dogs that have been put on. And one of these dogs is actually lying you know, on its back, having yeah. been taken out with the axe. The two that are coming at him, he is fearlessly going at them. And the black woman is behind him, yeah. you know, being protected by the black man. And it makes me think of, you know, Black Lives Matter at the moment. You know, we're having to say explicitly, protect black women. Mm. You know, black women are taking the brunt. And black women are at the forefront of Black Lives Matter too. Absolutely. And, and you know, you only have to look at the wall here to see that that's the history that black women have led from the front and the middle and the back but of the movement. They haven't had the credit yeah. for their role. And they've all, also not always had the protection. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love. I just love this picture. I think it tells a story that we haven't heard. And I think it's a story yet to be told. Yeah. Because slavery disrupted family. You know, you weren't allowed to marry. You weren't allowed to keep your children. But here, you know, it's just a different depiction. And, and I think, you know, the current scenario within the black community where you have a high disproportionate amount of um, single-parent families is another legacy of slavery. So it's one thing for people to look at the black community and say how dysfunctional it is. It's another thing to understand where that dysfunction came from. Hi. Hello. Hi, how are you today? Yeah, pretty good, thank you very much. Yeah, I'm Sarah Han and I work at the museum as education manager. So my area, actually, the audience that I focus on is young people and adults. We have a, an education programme that links to the content in, in the International Slavery Museum. So what t- sort of work do you do with young people then, Sarah? Because obviously this is, this is a really emotional museum, isn't it? You know, it must bring up lots of feelings in the young people as they go through it. Yeah, it's obviously it's a very sensitive subject matter that we're dealing with. It's people's lived experiences often, so you have to be really, really mindful of the fact that you might be talking to young people who've got direct experience through their heritage. So we, we are very, very mindful of that. So we've got a session called Understanding Transatlantic Slavery, and that's one where we obviously look at the subject matter of, of transatlantic slavery, who was affected, how it came to be. But before they even take part in that session, we make sure that all the students that are going to take part have an activity beforehand with their teachers where they discuss language uh, and the power of language and the words that that can cause emotions to, to come up or can be offensive or appropriate language to use. So, for instance, in relation to African people, you wouldn't refer to a person as a slave because actually that suggests that that it's sort of inherent in, in their being. You have to refer to somebody as being enslaved because it was something that was done to that person. So it's about getting them to understand the language that to use to give them the power to talk about the subject. Although it is about transatlantic slavery, we don't want to focus on purely on that because the people that were enslaved before they were enslaved had lives. They were mothers, they were grandmothers, they were workers, they had, you know, they've got an entire heritage, rich heritage of skills and trades that they were able to to do beforehand. And also during their time being enslaved, there was lots of examples of resistance. So we like to talk about, obviously, the atrocities, but we talk about the resistance alongside to, to try and balance the 
the picture. What, what, what have we got here then? Yep, we've got a couple of handling objects on a table because we do use objects in the sessions. We always start off by explaining absolutely people can have a huge emotional response to these objects and we have to be respectful of them because of course they are connected to quite a traumatic well very traumatic history one of the things we've got on the table is something that's called a punishment collar it's um, a metal ring that opens it's quite a heavy metal ring it opens and unfortunately it fits around a person's neck going up from the back of that ring is like a tall thin arm really it looks like it an looks arm like a hand with a hand yeah. yeah it looks like a hand at the top now it's believed that actually the enslaved african people were made to make these and actually just looking at it as a craft point of view there's a lot of work goes into that and skill it's very very heavy so it would have caused a lot of pain when it was worn and it would have restricted movement because of this hand shape that goes either up the back towards the back of the head or it can go in front of the mouth so, which would obviously prevent people from being able to communicate properly verbally. However... Or eat. Or eat, yeah. yeah. It is believed, though, that this hand shape at the top is representative of a symbol within African culture. Now, we don't know whether it's within Nigerian, within Ghanaian, but it's within African oh, like culture. Oh, the hands of Fatima. Yeah, so it's like a resistance symbol that would make sense to other enslaved people and would be sort of a little bit like a fingers up to the plantation owners people are able to touch this but obviously we don't let anybody put it on or wear it it has to be can treated I hold really it? you can hold it i just want to feel just the, simply, just how heavy it is. the weight is something that really yeah gets, I mean, gets that the idea is across. Like just feeling the weight of that and thinking if i had that on my shoulders yeah. and and this thing off the back of my neck it would be not only incredibly uncomfortable but it would be quite debilitating as well grotesque and dehumanizing isn't it so we're at the end of um i think some very traumatic and quite memorable episodes in this chapter of enslavement at the museum leona i'm having very mixed feelings about this i don't know what your experience has been like today i think the legacies bit is the bit that'll stick with me the most you know that's really developed a lot since i was last at the museum and it's it's great to see the representation the people who've achieved people who inspire our next generation whether they're local people or whether they're you know from all around the world i've mentioned a few times haven't i about my children next time i bring them I might start there, start with the legacy rather than start with slavery. And is that really to try and sort of start more on on a a positive? Yeah, just to switch up the narrative as well. I think that they they think of this museum as just being all about slavery, the misery of slavery. I think that the legacy section definitely is a a feeling of empowerment. That's why I would start there. And it's, a, it's an element of black people telling their own story. You know, the story of slavery isn't necessarily told by black voices, although it's told through the artefacts and the exhibitions. And so for, for my kids especially, I think that they need to see the journey that's being travelled. You know, um, their kids, they feel embarrassed that their um, ancestors were slaves. Mm. You OK? Yeah. It's incredibly emotive, Leona, you know. I just, it's difficult conversations to have with the kids. Yeah. We've got a lot as a people to be proud of, and I think we need to encourage our children to 
stand proud and to not be embarrassed by what was done to us in any way, shape or form in much the same way as you would tell a victim of a crime not to be embarrassed about having been the victim of a crime. If anyone should be embarrassed, it's the perpetrators. I think it's for us as parents to contextualise what happened, but also to uncover the full narratives of slavery and to understand that, you know, within the context of that, that we do have a lot to be proud of. We as a people survived slavery. We as a people have emerged despite slavery. We stand here today. You're a PhD doctor. I'm reading for a PhD at Cambridge. And we are part of the legacy of slavery, but we're doing incredible things for our children as role models and also for our people. Despite slavery, we stand tall, and that's got to be a positive for our kids. The story is bad. The the history is bad. The outcomes were traumatic and, and harrowing. However... We stand strong, and I think that should be the takeaway from it. And that certainly is the takeaway from me, and that's what I try to instill in my children. It makes me think of that quote, I am the dreams and hope of a slave, and we are. Thanks for listening to Meet Me at the Museum with me, Malik Alnasser. And me, Leona Vaughan, at the International Slavery Museum in Liverpool. If you like this episode of the podcast, please rate, subscribe or tell a friend. And don't forget, you can show your love for museums with a National Art Pass. It gives you great benefits at hundreds of venues at the same time as raising money to support them.